Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we've got a treat for you. It's going to be a special bonus conversation with Brett Wood, the creator of the How Stuff Works podcast, The Control Group. That's right. We've been uh, meaning to do this for a little bit ever since The Control Group came out over the summer. Because we really think Stuff to Blow Your Mind listeners will enjoy this show. It, it touches on a number of, of things that we've discussed in the past on this show. Uh, so we were like, oh, we should, we should talk to Brad, have him in the studio, and maybe we can, we can throw this at the end of an episode or the beginning of a vault episode. But it ended up being just such a good little chat. Uh, we thought we'd just put it out in its own neat little package. That's right. We had a great time talking to Brett, and we hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey, Brett, thanks for joining us on the show today. Uh, Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Introduce yourself. Sure. I'm Brett Wood. I'm the writer and director of The Control Group, but I'm also a filmmaker, independent filmmaker, and uh, have been very involved in uh, film restoration. I've written about film history a lot, so I'm kind of a movie guy who discovered uh, the uh, wonderful possibilities of the podcast. So here I am. And so you have a, a podcast on our network right now in the, in the Stuff Media group with us. Uh, tell us about The Control Group. The Control Group is a 10-part uh, uh, scripted drama podcast, and it revisits a sort of fascinating period of history, the early 1960s, when the CIA was doing two interesting things. On one hand, uh, conducting a secret drug experimentation for the sake of finding a a, a, an effective method of mind control, and at the same time sort of funding medical research for the same purpose uh, in public institutions through a phantom organization. And uh, these two phenomena have sort of been discussed in uh, sort of the, the secret history uh, subculture that we all love. And so what I did is sort of narrativize them and combine them into one story and let them play off each other. Oh, so we've talked a little bit about this historical period on the show before, and I assume on the podcast, uh, you, I, I have started listening and I'm hooked now. I haven't made it to the end of the Great. season yet, but I can't, I can't wait to see what happens. I assume you get into uh, Project Artichoke, Bluebird, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And what's funny is a lot of people who were involved in these things never knew they were involved in these things because – you know, especially in the medical research, no one wanted to be working for the CIA or feeling like mm-hmm. what they were doing is for government use, espionage. So they kind of covered that up. And we would never have known about MKUltra and Bluebird and Artichoke and Naomi if it weren't for sort of the accidental survival of certain records, which people were then able to go back and piece together and sort of create a, a narrative of what, you know, what had gone on here. And now some of this information is declassified, right? Right. But there's very little actual information about what they were doing other than it all sort of came together through uh, financial records and it was pieced together. And then that gave people names. Interviews could be conducted. And so we have a pretty good understanding of what went on but not the thorough documentation of, uh, you know, government research programs today. And so the context here, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it would, it would be basically Cold War research into the idea of how, how you could get information out of people, in, interrogation techniques, and maybe even control people's behavior without them being conscious of it. 
Right. And uh, Americans always wanted a quick and effective solution that was more sciencey, kind of James Bondian, as opposed to sort of a long-term psychological approach. You know, they wanted something you could slip in someone's glass, a dart you could shoot in someone's neck, and have that kind of control. But it just doesn't work that way. But you know, there was confidence that it could work that way, and so they applied a lot of their forces to coming up with this, you know, magic bullet that would let you either affect someone's um, thoughts or uh, mind them, find out what they're thinking. One of the things I love about the Control Group, uh, and it is is a lovely show. Uh, I, I recommend uh, all our listeners uh, check it out uh, for sure. But but one of the things I, I love is that it's 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 obviously not just a situation where. Uh, someone uh, steps in and says, hey, I represent uh, CIA. We're up to some sinister stuff. You're a sinister scientist. Let's do some experimentations on people. Uh, it, it does a, a really great job, especially early on, of, uh, of establishing you know, this, this sense of, um, of push and pull that would, uh, that would see a professional end up in, involved in projects like this. Yeah, they kind of um – you know, a play to someone's ego. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you're a medical professional and, A, someone's willing to fund your research almost without limit and also say, you know, telling you you're on to something big, I think if you just push it a little further, mm-hmm. go ahead and do that thing that ordinarily you might be reluctant to do because I think you're going you're gonna to break through, you know, onto something big. And it's about how you wear down someone's uh, – moral resistance or their ethics. You know, yeah. the, you know, we have certain ethical barriers which serve us well and serve our fellow humans well. And a lot of times, in this, for the sake of the greater good, people want to push those barriers down. Well, we've got, to, we've got to tackle this problem now, so let's not worry so much about experimenting on animals, experimenting on people. You know, this is such an urgent issue. We've got to solve it at all costs. And once you drop your moral barriers your ethical barriers, then it opens you up to all sorts of uh, dangerous abuses of power. And we've seen that a few times in our in our history. Oh, yes. Well, uh, you know, we're talking about a podcast. We're talking about an audio experience. So let's, let's just take a short break to listen to uh, the trailer for the control group, uh, for anyone who hasn't heard it, uh, and then we'll come back in and discuss it some more. This is a time of great opportunity for us, for modern medicine. Advancements are being made every day. For more than 75 years, the Central State Hospital at New Canaan has provided treatment for those with mental disabilities. But in recent weeks, something has changed. One of our doctors has adopted methods of treatment that are more experimental in nature. Methods one might consider ethically questionable. The Control Group is a 10-part scripted drama. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts and never miss an episode. Is that what you think I'm doing? Inflicting harm? To be honest, I don't understand what you're doing. And that's what frightens me the most. The Control Group, from How Stuff Works. All right, we're back. So, so uh, Brett, tell me, one thing that I was thinking about, we, we already talked about some of the, the historical examples that are essentially the, the, the bedrock upon which uh, this, this, uh, this fictional drama is, is created. Um, what was it like to, to, to build with the, both these historical elements and then fictional elements? I'm, I'm always reminded uh, in cases like this of um, 
something that uh, Umberto Eco wrote about it uh, in reference to the name of the rose, where he he said that he would have this this list of of weird but uh, historically factual um, tidbits, and then he would have the things that he just made up because they worked in a narrative <laughs> sense and a fictional sense. And often, people reading the name of the rose. Uh, would confuse the two. They'd assume, oh, well, this is too weird or too modern. You must have made this up. Or, and then likewise, the things that feel right, they would just assume that this was just part of the history. Uh, uh, how does this relate to your experience with the control group? Yeah, it's it's very relevant because just today, I, as I occasionally will, go back and read like listener reviews and comments. Mm-hmm. And one person said like, this is totally unbelievable. <laughs> and it would be funny to like lay it out and sort of show actually this happened, this happened, this happened. And the things that I've created are – there's really not that much – that I've done – episode 10, I take a big sort of speculative leap and I won't spoil it until you get there. Um, but for the most part, the things that are in the show are things that actually happened with uh, something called uh, depatterning, which is uh, using uh, drugs and shock therapy to sort of uh, flatten someone's brain waves and basically erase their memory and make them a blank slate. Uh, psychic driving, which is to – play repetitive messages in headphones or in speakers implanted in a bed continuously around the clock. Like these are all things that happened. And one thing that some people are disturbed by is something that's uh, amidst all this horror is pretty subtle but was still very much a part of this is sort of the inherent sexism of what was going on because it was frequently uh, men controlling women because women were perceived as being more malleable and passive. And and to me, that's the thing that sort of shows how we're crossing over from a doctor lowering his ethical standards to a person who is allowing themselves to be morally corrupted. Or, you know, cro- instead of crossing a professional boundary, now they're crossing, crossing a personal boundary. And... That And I think the two are almost interchangeable. When you start lowering one, uh, you know, social ethical restraint, others start to fall. And it becomes this horror story of it's not only about medical research and mind control now. Now it's about, you know, men abusing women or men feeling they have the right to control women and women within in the early 1960s when there's not a lot of power when the women were the nurses and the men were the doctors how can a woman fight against that and so i tried to make that a very important component of the control group and also like one of the sources of frustration and horror when you listen to the show because that's something we can relate to we can't all relate to you know getting electroconvulsive therapy right. and you know those kinds of things so you, your background is in film. Did you originally conceive the control group as a film project? And if so, uh, how did the transition to audio format go? Yes, it was uh, intended as a feature film. And uh, it had a script. And we had found locations. And I was in the process of casting it. Very low budget kind of stuff. And we were going to shoot it at an actual, uh, what had been a medical facility, which is no longer in use. And that is where a lot of the architecture of the control group, even though it's audio only, comes from of this sort of modern facility that adjoins this creaky old mansion. That was very much part of the space we were going to shoot it. And it's funny, that same uh, modern building connected to this uh, sort of monument to the past is pretty common in 
big state mental hospitals. In Milledgeville here in Georgia, you have the same thing. You have these ultra-modern buildings sitting alongside these crumbling Victorian buildings. So that was where we were going to shoot. But when they reviewed the script prior to our shooting, they withdrew permission for us to film there. And so this project went on the shelf, and I chose something else that I had in my other script drawer, which was very simple and inexpensive to film. So I did that instead, and that's a film called The Unwanted. You can stream it uh, on Amazon. (laughs) Oh. Um, And so uh, adapting it was a lot of fun because for a two-hour movie, you have to to be very concise. Everything has to be short and quick and move along. But suddenly to have this expanded canvas of a 10-episode podcast and having like five hours in which to tell the story was very liberating. And then I think the thing I love the best is that certain things that are cheesy when you do it on film, Mm -hmm. a hallucination. No one can do like an acid trip on film. It's always going to be cheesy. It's never going to quite be, you know, it's it's someone's visual representation of the unrepresentable. But with audio, you can kind of cross that line much more easily. And and sometimes what you imagine is much more effective and much worse than what I would have been able to, as a filmmaker, put on screen. So like – and even like the horrors of shock treatment, if I had tried to stage that on film, would have probably looked, I don't know, kind of conventional or it would have – but when you just hear the sound of someone like a convulsing on a gurney and, you know, choking with the mouthpiece in their mouth, that's – to me, that's much more visceral and what you in your mind create is much more uh, effective and affecting than, you know, what – I would have li- literally represented for that. So the the cast of the control group is is is, is excellent. Everybody really uh, really brings it. Is this the same team that you'd assembled for the film, or did you assemble a different team for the audio? Uh, how did the, how did this uh, come together? Yeah, totally different team because the film was going to be years ago, and I hadn't fully cast it yet. And uh, in between making the unwanted, uh, I made another film called Those Who Deserve to Die, which is sort of a supernatural revenge film, which we're just completing, so it's not out yet. And and that brought me in contact with, you know, another bunch of actors. And so the cast of the control group is basically all these actors I've worked with in previous films. So there's someone from Those Who Deserve to Die, someone from the control group. And also in one of the other hats I wear is doing some, like, film and video production and things like that. And I've dubbed foreign films into English, which is a lot of fun. And so I've used some of the voice actors from that process. So I had a little bit of experience in sort of constructing a a film, a narrative, audio only. Um, So that I definitely used all my tools from the film toolbox in making the control group. Now, Joe and I were off uh, mic here. We were already chatting a little bit about uh, movies of the past, and, and Joe and I talk a, a lot about, uh, especially B-movies um, on the show. Uh, so, so we have to ask you, what are your favorite mental hospital films, and did you draw inspiration from any of them for the control group? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, uh, you can't not be aware of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest just because it is like the big one but uh, Sam Fuller's Shock Corridor was definitely influential. But there's also some lesser-known films that I like a lot. There's one uh, called The Caretakers, which is very interesting, and uh, The Snake Pit, of course. Oh. 
and um, uh, uh, John Cassavetes, A Child is Waiting, even though it's about sort of a hospital for children with, uh, you know, mental retardation and developmental disabilities. But still, these ideas of this sort of clinical setting, which some of these movies are about the horror of a mental hospital, and some of them are about this is modern medicine, this is, the, this is hope. And so I kind of like for my world to be a little bit of both. It's a place where there are people who are genuinely interested in providing health care and looking for the latest and, you know, some new means of treatment, but also a place where, you know, uh, certain treatments are being performed that are maybe in 10 years not going to be looked upon as uh, you know, the most humane. Another thing uh, Robert and I have talked about before is how, you know, there are certain professions that are very, very often demonized in film. You, you know, you almost never like – unless it's a vampire movie, you almost never get a priest character <laughs> who's good, you know. And I feel like the the psychiatrist yeah. is a character who's kind of like that, is very, very often uh, a creepy villain in the film. And I know that – and obviously I don't feel that about psychiatrists in real life. I mean most mental health care professionals are people who are devoting their lives to try to help people. But – I wonder if that reveals some kind of underlying anxiety that people have about the uh, the mental health treatment relationship. And so I wonder if doing this show, especially based on historical examples where this relationship that's supposed to be a positive one, that's supposed to help people heal, could go very, very wrong and very abusive, um, did, did that – inform your your ideas about that anxiety, that cultural anxiety we have? I mean, I didn't think about it specifically, but, you know, it, all this stuff is like we carry it around with us, especially if we love movies, then we have the, whether we're that conscious of it or not. Um, but, you know, psychiatrists are the Frankensteins of the 21st century. You know, back then, the horror was uh, digging up a body to uh, anatomize the corpse that was sort of the foundation of the horror of Frankenstein, of surgery. You're actually going to cut into a body. You know, now we've grown used to that. That's science. And so now it's profaning, you know, the body by opening up the mind and, you know, taking something that's supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, invading the sanctity of the mind, uh, that doctors seem to have this uncanny power to open, crack open the head, as an expression we use in the control group. Um, so I think it's not so much, like you said, it's not that we distrust doctors and uh, psychiatrists necessarily. It's more the fact that they seem to have this power, which we don't fully understand, but possibly have this power over us that intimidates us, that you know, they may know us better than we know ourselves and be able to unleash something within us that we didn't know was there. Yeah, I think, well, it's something you touch on in uh, episodes of the show is the idea that psychiatry makes people maybe feel vulnerable because of its potential access to secrets that yeah. which people don't want uh, the the things people don't want known are potentially knowable by someone who knows how to look for them yeah and you know and and, uh, and and nobody wants to have their secrets known right especially if they don't know them first yeah <laughs> you know it's like you know i kind of would not spill out a dream i had and let somebody else uh, you know uh uh, analyze it until I kind of understood it myself. And I, I sort of feel like it's the same sort of thing. And um, 
So there's that protection of yourself that you don't know yet, but then there's also the the uh, the mining of secrets. There are things that I know that I don't want to tell anyone, and the fact that someone else may be able to get that out of me is a little frightening. Right. Not me personally, of course. <laughs> no, I'm an open book. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting you say that because, um, I mean, a, a, a creative project like this, you, you are, in a sense, taking a dream of your own, analyzing it, and then putting it out for everyone else uh, to, to, to see and, and reanalyze and say, who is this Brett Wood? And, uh, and, uh, and why does he think like this? And quite often, I realize things about myself that as people pointed out, I, or, as people point it out, I say, huh, maybe I, uh, <laughs> you know, I knew I have certain tendencies in me and maybe there's more tendencies or, you know, there's more things like this than I realize. And also, when you make a film or when you create a big project like this, you don't want to analyze it too much because mm-hmm. you have to kind of – I've always been a strong believer in writing from the gut. Don't censor yourself. Don't uh, don't understand it too well. Just do whatever it takes to open up the faucet and let the words flow. And it is, uh, you know, like a form of therapy that you let this stuff out. You know, and you want to dig into the weird stuff that no one else or not many other people are – digging into. So in all my films and in the control group and hopefully as we move forward, I'm going to continue to do that. And, you know, of course, you as you do that, you make sure you're doing something that is not morally reprehensible and you there's some purpose to what you're doing. But I think it's, it's important for the ar- artist to not completely understand their work. Because once you understand something, then there's no longer any reason to explore it. So... For me, for better or worse, it's taking that kind of muck out of the inside of me, putting it on a table, and then just kind of like fishing around in in it and seeing what's there and uh, turning it into a narrative and putting it in people's ears. I think we just mentioned this on the show recently, but I often think it's hilarious when – like an interviewer asks a creative person to explain their novel in terms of their autobiography. (laughs) You know, it just – that's somebody else's job. Come on. (laughs) But I'm sure that like after they've read it and then after they've heard feedback, they probably discover all sorts of things about themselves that they were not really thinking of when it was being written. Because, you know, anytime you write or even do any kind of like extemporaneous speaking, you're just like letting it flow out and you can't stop and understand it as the words are coming out. So it's it's kind of a, a... fun thing. It's like improv. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of nice to turn the the creative faucet on and sort of see what comes out. And hopefully, you know, you still have your friends and relationships after, <laughs> <laughs> after you've done so. Well, in that case, maybe allow me to illicitly ask you to, to summarize what your work means. If you, if you expect people to come away from the control group with a, with a thought or a message or a takeaway, what do you, what do you think that thought is? Well, on a broader canvas, all my work is about people who are trying to escape some sort of control, um, whether it's someone is uh, a, a morally oppressive force and how they find ways to, um, you know, to resist that oppression and find a way of expressing themselves. And usually it has to do with sexual matters. Um, that's kind of the thing that people are, and I think today are most commonly oppressed, you know, by 
having the freedom to express themselves sexually or the kind of partner they want to choose um, and how you get around that. So that's mm -hmm. kind of the core of my films. And maybe that's not so much specific to the control group, but the control group is about someone oppressing you and how do you maintain your individuality and not completely succumb to this force that's trying to shape you into not only something that's socially and morally acceptable, but maybe something that is shaping you into something that is, doesn't have feelings and doesn't have, feel like it can express itself. So I think it's about specifically then if what I would say someone should come away from the control group thinking about would be that um, there are always people trying to make you into something, whether it's overtly or just through osmosis. And it is important to sort of be true to who you are, but also to, you know, find the means and find the room to express yourself and be what you want to be, even if it is flying in the face of a giant governmental authority that wants to control your behavior. All right. Well, the show again is The Control Group. Uh, where can everybody get this? The entire series is out, right? Uh, all 10 episodes. All 10 episodes are live, and you can stream and subscribe at Apple Podcasts and wherever fine podcasts are heard. And our uh, official webpage is controlgroup.show. All right. Well, well, thanks for coming on the show and chatting with us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Brett. All right, so there you have it. Thanks again uh, to Brett for coming on the show and talking about the control group. Yeah, thanks a lot, Brett. Uh, hey, if you want to check out that show, where can they go for that? What's the website for the control group? Well, they can go to www.controlgroup.show. That's right. And hey, if you want to check out more about this show, about Stuff to Blow Your Mind, maybe you even just listened into this interview and you've never listened to Stuff to Blow Your Mind before. Well, you can check us out in a number of ways. You can go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. You can find all the episodes there. You can find links to our various social media accounts, a store to buy some merch, uh, and so forth. Uh, but you can also just find us anywhere you get your media. And wherever you get your media, help out our show by leaving a nice little review and as many stars as humanly possible. Thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.